Hey everyone, welcome to Summit Podcast, brought to you by Rosso. I'm your host, Johnny McCormick. In this episode, I'm joined by an expert in leadership alignment, Mark Dawson. During our conversation, Mark shares some practical tips on how you can build trust and develop alignment in your teams. So let's jump in and see what Mark has to say. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to appear on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Um, before we jump on, jump jump on in, Mark, I always like to give my guests the opportunity to introduce themselves in their own words. So, do you want to say a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, hi Johnny, and thanks for inviting me on the show. Um, so, I'm a little bit of an unusual sort of beast, um, and indeed, when I when I introduce myself at parties. Um, I always have to be very careful because um, I've got a background as in both accounting and psychology. So if I say the former at a party, people assume I'm going to be boring. And if I say the latter, people assume I'm going to be psychoanalyzing them. Um, I spent 30 years, uh, as you know, Johnny, at uh, PwC, um, where I led the firm's people and organization practice um, globally. Um, and about two years ago, I set up my own independent business um, really building on those two twin aspects of my background. So my sweet spot really is leadership, culture, um, performance, governance, and risk, um, uh, partly in banks because that's a sector that's been having some real issues around trust. So I do a lot of work trying to help banks think about what's going to make them trusted uh, and what are the inputs they need to start focusing on for that. And also in uh, retail and fast-moving consumer businesses that have been most affected by the whole sort of digital revolution, which has changed everything about all of those different dimensions of leadership, trust, culture, um, and performance. Great. Well, it's so nice to have you here, Mark. Um, whenever I initially reached out, I mentioned that I'd like to get your input for this podcast on the subject of leadership alignment. So do you want to say, um, again, in your own words, for people that may be listening that have never heard of this concept of leadership alignment before, what it, what it is, what it entails? Uh, Yes, so leadership alignment. Um, I guess where I start, uh, Johnny, is is, um, thinking about three things that aligned leadership teams have. Um, One is a sense of common purpose. Um, So that's an inspirational, emotional, um, aspirational, long-term vision. Um, The second is then uh, a common approach. Um, so that's more tactical. It's more behavioral. Uh, it's more embedded in the management processes that they operate as a team. And then the third thing that they have is a common and shared accountability for results, which is all about KPIs and metrics and, um, and a drive to deliver. Um, so so I, I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about alignment of purpose, the emotion, the heart, alignment of approach, the behaviors, the head. And then alignment of outcomes uh, around KPIs. Um, so that, that's where I'd start, I think. Can you say a little bit about um, what each of those looks like practically in an organization? So if you think about maybe a leadership team or um, a group of senior managers or a delivery team that are, that are getting together at the moment, how do they go about getting the alignment of purpose, approach, those sorts of things? So all of those, um, actually, all of those are about being prepared to put yourself into the debate 
Um, so one quite easy way to create common purpose, a common approach and shared accountability is for a leader to select people who already buy into everything he or she thinks and does. Um, so the easiest way to get if you're a CEO or a divisional head or a project leader, is to find people who look and act like you do because you've sort of retrofitted it and you've created alignment um, by design. Um, but obviously, the more we learn about the need for complementary skills and diversity, um, and the more we learn that the best teams actually represent all of the different elements of, of their wider stakeholder net, the more actually the best thing is to create a really diverse team and then work creating um, alignment within it. Um, and that's obviously much harder. And it really starts, as I say, by putting yourself all in, which is about a degree of trust and a, and a preparedness to make yourself vulnerable, first as the leader by surrounding yourself with people who don't look like you, and then as a whole team in um, talking about your differences um, and putting your own point into the room. So, so trust, assuming you don't want to go down the route of simply surrounding yourself with people who look like you, uh, then starting with trust um, is fundamental to, to common purpose, common approach and common accountability. So Mark, if you are a leader in an organisation, there's probably a sense of temptation to get people that look like you, think like you, probably agree with you, have maybe even moved through the organisation um, with you on the same sort of trajectory. How can a leader um, give themselves some intentional pause to create diversity in a team? What are some of the steps that they can maybe take to bring in divergent voices in a way that they think is not going to derail the organization, not derail their progress, but bring in, like you say, those divergent viewpoints that can provide complementary skills and maybe even provide a little bit of acceleration in the organization? The first question, I think, Johnny, is why Why do you need to be diverse? Um, so if you're in a really stable environment, um, you've been successful in the past, you know the rules of the game work, and your external environment is, is stable, then, frankly, you don't really need, I don't think, a lot of diversity. But, of course, the reality is that describes almost no environment anymore. So if I'm trying to set up or if I'm advising a a leadership team, but the place I would start because it gains legitimacy um, to invest in diversity is exploring the external environment and its volatility um, and some of the trade-offs that it is going to require going forward. Um, uh, and as soon as you start doing that, A, you buy your, a, a, you explain to yourself as a leader why more of the same isn't going to work. B, you start to identify where the diversity needs to come from. And C, you start to identify the really critical issues that you want to get some diverse views on. So that's where I'd start. And, and, and to make that really practical, um, the safe way to do that as a leader is to do that either yourself or with one or two trusted people first, ironically, who may think like you, and then slowly to broaden the debate out into your external stakeholder group. So I would then start talking to some customers. Um, I'd talk to some suppliers. If I'm on a project, I'd talk to some of the people that I'm working with from across different parts of the organization who are important to the project and just get a sense of the different perspectives that I need to represent. Mm. And Mark, you've mentioned that one of the keys to um, teams that get alignment is trust. So being able to put yourself all in in the process, I think you've mentioned. So bring your full self to the table, bring your full self to the debate. How do teams go about 
fostering that sense of trust, but also safety where it feels okay to bring your full self and maybe bring divergent points of view to the table? I mean, the obvious point to make um, is that it takes time. Um, There's a lovely expression that the Dutch have, um, which I won't try and say in Dutch. (laughs) The English translation is, trust arrives on foot and leaves on horseback. Uh, Very easy to lose. It's very quick to lose with one sense or one look, even, um, or one action, um, but it builds very slowly. So obviously, the most important thing um, and sometimes quite a difficult thing is for the leadership team to invest time, um, not just in the um, business as usual rhythm of performance and results, but invest time in talking about some of the difficult issues, some of the things that they might disagree with, um, spend time off-site. And, and in, in, a, in an age where we're all working longer hours um, and with more pressure, that's quite a hard thing to create. So there's a need to invest time in the relationships, uh, both for the leader and then for all of those um, around them. And then the, the, the other thing I would say practically is start with some really easy stuff. So, so I find an abstract conversation about trust quite, quite um, unhelpful um, because we all espouse a set of values around trust and then we don't necessarily deliver on them. So I would always start the trust building with some really sort of um, easy activities. A, a good example I use a lot of leadership teams that I work with is to say, get, get them together for an evening, um, uh, perhaps have a meal. Um, if evening doesn't work because people have needs outside, then you need to create the environment, obviously, but still preferably away from the workplace. Um, and I will start with a really simple activity like go around the room and each of us describe how many siblings we have, uh, where we appear in that sibling order, um, a challenge we had when growing up, um, and how, as a family um, and as an individual, um, I dealt with that challenge. And then what it tells the rest of the team about who I am today and a strength I took from that challenge, which you can all rely on from me in the here and now. And I've immediately, and it's interesting, if you try that exercise, um, you'll immediately sense a complete difference in the, in the feel of the um, people, are, people. People are all listening and no one's on the Blackberry or, or iPhone or whatever it is these days. Um, and people start disclosing things about themselves, um, which they, and it's interesting, I did this with the leadership team of one of the UK's top four um, supermarket groups, um, who, and the leadership team have been working together for like seven or eight years, and they learned things literally in that half an hour, they learned things about each other, A, which they had no idea about, one of them had lost his um, father um, as quite a young boy, and had sort of taken on the father role in the family. Um, and talked about how that had influenced him a huge amount. No one else around the leadership team knew that fact about this particular individual. And it completely changed, therefore, their knowledge of each other, their expectations of each other, um, but most importantly, their levels of trust. Do you see that, Mark, then translating into a real difference in how the team performs together? So I can see that there would be lots of benefits in terms of their interpersonal relationships, but does that translate into actual tangible business performance changes as well? So I think there's two aspects to your question, Johnny. One is it's only the start of the process. you know. So you start to demonstrate to people that they can be themselves. And you need to craft your whole agenda around that as a leadership team. Um, uh, so, so it's not in, it's it's necessary but not sufficient to start the trust building business. 
you then need to think about how you have conversations, about how you invite people into the room, um, about who you invite into the room. All of that sort of stuff needs to follow. So trust is something you need to work on constantly. I think that's the first thing to say. But you need to get started somewhere. Um, and I, it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. So if we start by acting trustfully, and that's where that little exercise is a good way of doing it, then over time, if we repeat that through the process, then it starts to change the way that we think. Um, and then the second part of your question, does it then link through to um, performance? Um, I think it links through to performance in any environment which is not stable. Any environment which requires um, you to be very in touch with the things that are changing in your external environment. Um, by definition, having a team of people who are prepared to challenge the norms and the established ways of working is going to be much more effective in that environment. Is one of the is is one of the outcomes mark of an exercise like this, or trying to get a leadership team aligned? the idea of consensus so is this about trying to appease everyone so that everyone's on the same page because it would seem to me that sometimes that could lead to like a lowest common denominator solution where um you know you just get everything it gets chipped away so that everyone's got a little bit of their own happiness or their own outcomes within it is this is this at its heart just about getting consensus or is this about helping teams foster those healthy disagreements where they can have discussions where they disagree with one another what's what's at the real heart of this or what's the real outcome so the cliche is is cabinet responsibility isn't it um um and it's interesting i mean I, I, just a very topical aside so we've got a new prime minister um in the uk um, and he has created a cabinet which has very little diversity of thought um quite deliberately because he has uh, an urgent short-term objective, which all of his external stakeholders are highly agitated about in one direction or another. And he's inheriting an environment where there has been drift, um, for better or for worse. I'm making no comment on his... <laughs> but, but, it is, but it is interesting that he has opted for um, a complete lack of difference in thinking. Um, and so he will. He, he, I'm sure, will end up with a cabinet who will violently agree on the direction to take. And, and I think when you're in crisis, and unfortunately as a country we're in crisis, um, there is merit in that approach. Um, but the key thing where I started there in terms of cabinet responsibility, whether we're talking about this cabinet or any other, um, you have the violent disagreement in the room. And interestingly, I think they'll have less violent disagreement than the last one. And then when you come out of the room, you front into the wider world with a completely joined up and agreed perspective. And that is obviously what alignment is about. And actually, again, when I talk to a leadership team about what do we mean by alignment, you've got alignment at two levels. You've got alignment of thought, and that's where common purpose matters, right? So the spirit, the heart, the values, what we espouse, that's, that's alignment of thought. And actually, the more difference you bring to that, the better. Then you have, I said at the beginning, a common approach, which is about alignment of what you do. Um, and your alignment in what you do and what you say externally needs to be really strong. So I don't think you want the lowest common denominator. You want a common purpose which embraces all of the difference in outlook. And then where you do want to try and drive much more um, one view is, is in the way that you work with your outside teams. Because it's a truism to say that all of us as 
people watching a leadership team, we're very attuned to difference from them. If one of them says it's all about this month's results and one says it's all about next year, or if one says it's all about the financial performance and one says it's all about the customer, then even if you can only get a cigarette paper between the differences of how they express their common common view and their alignment, as as individuals will exploit that um, and will prize it apart. So that's where you really need the joined upness in in terms of how it's how it's perceived by people outside the team. So there's two things, Mark. I'd love to I'd love to pick up on in there. One is um, I remember working with an insurance company um, a number of years ago. I was speaking with um, one of their executive leadership teams, and he was airing some challenges that he'd had following a recent um, meeting of the senior staff, and sort of my. My quick query to him at the time was, okay, well, but why didn't you say that in the room? And he responded saying, you know, oh, it's easy. It's easier just to nod your head and pretend, pretend like you agree, but then you can go and do, do your own thing. So it's not necessarily, we're not going to deliver what we've necessarily agreed to in the room. And I found that quite interesting. Um, so I'd love to get your views on how people can perhaps feel safe to disagree with maybe those that are in authority or maybe those that are seen as having a really strong viewpoint. Um, So how they can feel safe to disagree with them in a way that doesn't lead to a relational breakdown. And then the second thing I'd love to get your input on, which is slightly different, is how can you as a leader, if you maybe don't necessarily fully sign up to something or subscribe to a viewpoint that has been arrived at, arrived at in the room how can you go out and take an authentic point of view on delivering against that with your staff so if that's the decision that's been made it's one that you don't necessarily agree with how can you go out and lead lead against that authentically so i've been doing some work with one of the big european banks um and they've been trying to understand why people sometimes behave in a way that isn't congruent with their values they do the wrong thing um, and one of the reasons that they've identified is that is that people in the bank think that what their leaders expect of them is simply to drive performance, um, and that that's sort of all that matters. So they've got this like bias to do what they think their leaders want. Ironically, even though sometimes the leader would be scratching their head saying, hang on, what on earth did they end up doing that? It's clearly the wrong thing by the customer or whatever it happens to be. And so we've really explored this with that leadership team to try and understand why do people um, sometimes behave in a way which is not congruent with their values. Um, and, 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 and what that particular chief executive has done now, just as a really practical way to get after your first point, is he now always goes last in a debate around the table. So when there's a key question, they have a, they have a reputation committee um, which meets whenever there's a trade-off around different, you know, stakeholder groups on on a new product or a, or a, or a customer question or whatever. The reputation committee meets to discuss it, and he now goes last in that discussion because he he recognises that if he goes first, which is what he always used to do because he wanted to put the context into the room, immediately starts to shift other people into, if you like, um, an authority bias. Um, of buying into the leader's point of view or trying to arbitrage how far dare I disagree. Um, equally, when they when they uh, are discussing an issue on email, he might say, look, I really want to know what the group thinks about X. Um, he disables the reply to all because what he wants is to get everybody to give their own view unfettered by what they think the bandwagon is, is, is agreeing around the table. So 
some really simple, again, it's about acting your way into your way of thinking. There are some really simple techniques you can use to try and drive difference. One that I've used quite a lot with executive teams, I'm sure you're familiar with you know, Edward de Bono's Different Hats leadership team, um, uh, just as a really simple way of forcing diversity. Um, okay, this, this week, Johnny, I'd like you to wear the black hat, which is I'd like you to disagree with everything I say as a chair. Another another technique I've seen used a lot in leadership teams is we have the empty chair, which represents um, a, a, a viewpoint that isn't around the table. It might be the customer, it might be the regulator. Um, and, and, and in any discussion, we force ourselves to say, well, what would the person in the empty chair say? So there are things you can do to drive diverse input in a way that's safe. I think the important thing is to recognize you have to find these, these, these devices to make it safe so that people aren't having to express a perspective as their own, which might seem to be at odds with, with the norm. It's worth saying, you know, all of the work that's been done on, on, on um, neuroscience tells us that very deeply hardwired in our limbic system is the need to conform. Um, that has been right there, right there from the start of, 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 of humankind. Um, the need to be very sensitive to our position in the tribe, to what the leaders of the tribe are doing, and to how to stay safe in the tribe. And so if you want to encourage people to rise above that, which is what we're talking about in terms of expressing difference, you have to find devices to make that safe. It won't happen of its own accord just by asking people to do it. Yeah, to- totally. So Mark, just picking up on the, the second part of the question then, which was how can a leader maybe go out once a decision has been made in the room, it's maybe not the position that they were advocating for. And, you know, you mentioned earlier the violent disagreement in the room and then the alignment outside of the room. How can a leader um, authentically stand behind a position that's been taken in the room that they may not fully agree with? So the, I think the, the simple answer here is they've just got to suck it up and do it. And, and it's about holding yourself to account uh, I mean, if, if you look at any of the work on high-performing teams, um, the reason you will do that is because you have a high degree of trust in your and you have gone through a process whereby you've, you've expressed your real point of view. You recognize that your point of view has been heard and taken account of, and you are now agreeing that the outcome, even though it's the one that you wouldn't have wanted to get to, is one that you're prepared to hold yourself to. So I think it's only going to work, and this is really more for the leader of the team to think about. Leader of the team can only really hold her or his colleagues to account for doing the agreed thing if they've gone through a process that enables each of those team members to feel like they can trust the outcome, even though they disagree with it. If you've got that, then frankly, as an individual leader, you've just got to hold yourself to account and, and, and make it happen. One exercise I did with the leadership team at an investment bank uh, who'd gone through this process and they found themselves, that their, 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 their teams told them that they were undermining um, their colleagues in public. They, they, they were far too different in the way that they were describing what was happening. So we got the, the leadership team together and we got them to open their iPhone diary and look back over the previous seven days and identify the three opportunities they had to either support or undermine the key things that they'd agreed on. And so, for instance, it might have been a town hall meeting. It might have been talking to people at the coffee machine. 
It might have been a product approval meeting. Um, it might have been a quarterly performance update meeting. It might have been a briefing with an individual on a new project. So they identified the three conversations or interactions they'd had, which were most likely either to support or undermine. And we got them in pairs to talk about what they'd actually done and what they'd said. And indeed, down to who they'd invited. It's not just about the words they'd used, of course. Who had invited? Was there somebody there from risk? You know, we've said that our key initiative is we've got to get risk more involved. And I said that at the town hall dutifully, but then every meeting I had last week had nobody there from risk. Or the agenda was structured in such a way that risk wasn't given a chance to appear on, on the agenda. So we got them to really challenge each other on whether they'd lived what they'd committed to in their key interactions. And it was quite interesting because, of course, what we found was that in their pairs, the person they were telling about what they'd done was much more likely to challenge them on how they'd done it. But they did that in a way that they felt was acceptable and safe. So then we got them to look forward to the next week's diary, identify the next three interactions that were given the chance to either do this or not do it, and identify how they were going to behave differently. And then, they, and then at the end of the next week, they sat down with the colleague they talked to in the team and, and uh, discussed what they'd really done in practice. Because a lot of this, actually, we, one of the biases that we have as, as humans is that we, it's called, it's called illusory superiority. We believe that we're ethically stronger than we are. If we sign up to something, we genuinely believe that we go out and deliver against it. But the reality is when we stop and challenge and think about it, we recognize the ways in which we've perhaps fallen a little bit short. So you've got to start by giving people the chance to recognize where they might not do what they've committed to doing in practice. One of the teams that I worked with a number of years ago, Mark, um, were having an issue around this. And one of the the sort of the mantras on their team became the right to be heard, but not the right to be right. So you've you've the right to be heard within the room. Your viewpoint has the right to be heard and uh, you're sort of required and it's incumbent on you to bring that viewpoint to the room. But just because you've brought it to the room doesn't necessarily mean it's correct and it doesn't necessarily mean it's the course of action that we're going to take. It's just that you have the right to bring that viewpoint to the room, which I quite liked. So, Mark, we're coming in um, for a landing now. And one final question that I wanted to pose to you was if someone's listening to this and maybe beginning to think about how they can build more of a foundation of trust in their team, but they're not at the point of, you know, being able to do an offsite or an evening experience with their team just because they don't have the buy-in for that at the moment. What are some of the practical steps that they can take in the next sort of three or four days just during the course of their day-to-day job to begin to build that foundation of trust with their team a little bit more? So that's a that's a that's quite a profound question, isn't it, Johnny? Because because everything we do drives the degree of trustworthiness that we have. I guess that's where. I, so where would I start? I would start with the question not of trust but trustworthiness. So so I think so so I'm going to say find three or four hours in the next week um, and spend the first of those hours reflecting on your own trustworthiness. Um, if you were looking at yourself, what are the things that others might spot you doing which might either undermine or reinforce your degree of trustworthiness? And that's a piece of reflection, which is important, I think, here. And then what I'd do with the other two or three hours, well, I'd certainly spend a couple of hours in maybe half-hour sessions with three or four of my key colleagues, one-on-one, having a conversation about trust um, 
what's going well, what's not going well, um, what are we not talking about as a leadership team? I try and find some easy, some practical questions that are different to the ones I normally ask. Um, and then the last thing that I think I would start to do is I'd start to I'd identify something that I that I would do differently as a leader. If in meetings I tend to speak a lot, I would decide that I was going to stay quiet. If in meetings I tended always to find the dark thing in what others had said, I'd commit to starting with a positive reflection. Um, if I always go for the financial data, I'd start to go more for the human data. And I would signal that to people and say, here's something I'm going to start trying to do differently because I recognize that sometimes when I do X, which is one of my key strengths, if I overplay it, I get the wrong result. Um, and, and that would have a number of, of impacts, Johnny. First off, obviously, it would signal to the organization the new direction I was trying to take. Um, uh, but secondly, uh, you build trust by making yourself vulnerable. You know, you build a relationship by going first. And so you would be signaling to the organization that you were prepared to sacrifice something that had made you who you are and that you recognized you wanted to do something differently. And it's hard to expect anybody else to do anything differently if you haven't signaled um, that commitment in yourself. So I think, I think that those are some practical things that I would look to do if I were, if I were looking to, to shift the dynamic around trust. Yeah, really, really love those um, suggestions, Mark. And I think for me, that that positive signal that one leader can take, it gives permission, um, either implicitly or explicitly, to others to do something differently as well, and invites them into the process of change. Um, so Mark, want to finish up by saying thank you so much for taking the time to be in the podcast. It was really um, lovely having your input and your wisdom on this subject. So really, thank you so much. And good luck to all of those listening who are trying to build stronger teams, either in their day-to-day -day leadership or on projects or whatever else it happens to be. It's worth the effort. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Johnny.